uh, Hebrews 9, 23 to 26. What we're going to do today is I want to go back and read a few verses from last week because I feel like this will be extremely important for us to know what the author of Hebrews is talking about here. So even though we're going to only focus on verse 23 to 26, I'm going to go back and read from verse 18 to verse 26. Here is what the author of Hebrews um, told us. That is why even the first covenant was not put into effect without blood. For when Moses had proclaimed every command of the law to all the people, he took the blood of calves together with water, scarlet wool, and branches of hyssop, and he sprinkled the scroll and all the people. He said, this is the blood of the covenant which God has commanded you to keep. Verse 21, in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tabernacle and everything used in its ceremony. In fact, the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. Verse 23, therefore, it was necessary that the copies of the things in the heavens should be purified with these things, the blood of the sacrifices, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has not entered the holy place made with hands, uh, which are copies of the true, but into heaven itself now to appear in, in the presence of God for us, not that he should offer himself often as the high priest enters the most holy place every year with the blood of another. He then would have had to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now, once at the end of the age, he has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Amen? Can we read verse 26 together? But uh, he then would have had to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now, once at the end of the ages, he has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. If you have to memorize one verse in this passage, please memorize verse 26. So powerful. So we've been in the book of Hebrews now for 38 weeks. Um, and again, the book of Hebrews was written to uh, people who were Jewish at some point, and then they became Christian. And now after they have become Christian, because of persecution, they wanted to go back to Judaism. So the author of Hebrews wrote this book to them to encourage them never to consider going back to Judaism. In the first pretty much 10 chapters, he was arguing the supremacy and the superiority of Christ over the Old Testament elements. The idea, again, is that if Christ is superior, then they should not leave what is superior to go to what is inferior. We have seen that Jesus is superior to the prophets, to the angels, to Moses, to Aaron, the high priest of the Old Testament, both in his person and in his ministry. And that is pretty much that the ministry of Christ as our high priest is superior than the ministry of Aaron as, our, as the high priest of the Old Testament is the subject of, of chapter 8, 9, and pretty much the whole chapter 10. Right now we're in chapter 9 where the author of Hebrews is arguing that the ministry of Christ is superior than the ministry of Aaron. Amen? In verses 11 to 28, which our passage is part of that, he's introducing to us four reasons, four reasons why the ministry of Christ 
as our high priest is far more important and far more superior than the ministry of Aaron. The four reasons are, number one, because of the power of the blood of Jesus. And that's what he discussed in details in verse 13 to verse um, 22, where he said, while the blood of the Old Testament sacrifices failed to cleanse the conscience of the one who's trying to approach God, how much more, right? Remember that, verse 14? How much more would the blood of Jesus, who through the eternal spirit offered himself up to God, will cleanse your conscience from dead deeds to worship the living God or to approach the living God? Amen? So while the blood of the sacrifices failed in the Old Testament to cleanse the conscience of the one who's trying to come close to God, the blood of Jesus is different. It actually does cleanse the conscience from dead works. And the result of that, we can approach, worship, and minister to the living, holy God. But number two, the blood of Jesus is far more superior than the blood of the Old Testament sacrifices. Thus, the ministry of Christ is far more superior than the ministry of the Old Testament priest. Because it is because of the blood of Jesus that the new covenant has been inaugurated. Amen? We entered into that new covenant with God with these wonderful terms that we talked about before. Absolute forgiveness of sin. Unconditional acceptance by God. All the terms of this covenant is, is, is given to us and inaugurated, ratified only by the blood of Christ. Amen? We read that passage, part of that passage earlier today, because I want you to keep that in mind while trying to understand today's passage. Now, today we're going to look into two more reasons why the ministry of Christ is better than the ministry of the high priest of the Old Testament. Because Jesus entered into heavens itself, that's verse 23 to 24, and also because Jesus put away sin once and for all by the sacrifice of himself, verses 25 and 26. Next week, we're going to close by how Jesus saved us from the judgment to come by the power of his blood. Now, let's go back to try to understand uh, verses 23 to 26. Verse 23 is pretty much a very difficult verse to understand. So we'll read it and try to reason through it to see what the author of Hebrews is trying to tell us here. Uh, Hebrews 9.23. Therefore, it was necessary that the copies of the things in the heavens should be purified with these, which is the blood of the sacrifices of the Old Testament, but the heavenly themselves with better sacrifices than these. The problem with this verse is that it kind of implies that heaven itself or what is in heaven need to be purified, right? That it has been defiled and it needed the sacrifice of Christ to be cleansed, right? And that's kind of a problem because does our sin really defile the presence of God, the dwelling place of God, right? That's, that's what it seems like he's implying here. And he's also implying that heaven or the things that are heaven or the dwelling place of God needed, in a way, the sacrifice of Christ in order for it to be cleansed. And that's kind of like, would be a strange concept. We'll never read that anywhere else in the, in the Bible, right? And it's a vague verse, so we're not really sure what the author of Hebrews is trying to tell us here. So let's try to uh, zoom into that verse a little bit and try to break it down, understand what he's trying to tell us. Let me just tell you something up front. There are tons of interpretation for that verse in different commentaries. None of them, has, uh, none of them is not problematic. Uh, 
Every single way you look at that verse, try to understand it, there's a problem with it, right? So there is no 100% uh, clear understanding of what the author of Hebrews is telling us here. What I'm going to present to you today is what I believe is the least problematic, not the problem-free solution or understanding. This is the one that makes the most sense, even though you can challenge it and you can find ways not to accept it. I can't blame you for it. Amen? But let's look at the context. Before verse 23, what is the author of Hebrews is talking about here? It's talking about an incident that was recorded in Exodus 24, right? When Moses was, was inaugurating the old covenant with the people of Israel, he read the commandments of God, and after he read the commandments of God, the people said, yes, we will obey the word of God, and we will do all his commandments. And that was the covenant. God gave the commandment, the people say we'll obey it, and in order to ratify, to inaugurate that old covenant, what did Moses do? He, he brings a sacrifice, he slaughtered that sacrifice, he takes the blood, and he sprinkled the blood on the tabernacle and all its furniture. And he tells the people of Israel, this is the blood of the covenant. And that's how the Old Testament covenant started. So that is what is preceded verse 23. You guys are with me? Now what is after verse 23 is that the author of Hebrews now is referring to a different incident in the Old Testament. Which is what happens in the day of atonement. You guys are with me? That's Leviticus 16. So, before verse 23 is Exodus 24. You're with me? After verse 23 is Leviticus 16. What happens on the Day of Atonement? Let's see that diagram together so we can see what's going on here. That diagram gives you um, a picture of how the tabernacle in the Old Testament was set. You have the entrance from the east side where people can enter into the presence of God. And then once you enter, you have the, the yard that's not even inside the building. The first thing you see is the uh, bronze altar where people offer sacrifices to God and shed the blood of a sacrifice. After you move beyond that, you see the, um, the bronze laver. That's where there's water so people can just wash their hands and feet. Uh, that's right after the, the altar. And then you enter into the building, the, the holy place, the first one. And then the second place is the holy of holies. What separates the holy place from the holy of holies is the veil. You guys are with me? So that veil serves as a barrier that people cannot just move from the holy place into the holy of holies because of that veil. Now, we know from the Old Testament um, rules and regulation that everybody in the congregation can enter into the yard of the tabernacle, right? The whole nation, anybody can go inside, the, inside the, the tabernacle. That's not a big deal. Now, the first room, who can enter there? Any priest. Priests, right. How many times a year? Doesn't matter, right? They can enter as much as they want, any time in the year. So only the priests, the, the children of Aaron, the Levi, can enter into the holy place, the first room, um, to minister to God, right? But who enters behind the veil? The high priest. The high priest. How many times a year? Good. One person has been paying attention for the last five years. That's good. Uh, the high priest will enter into the Holy of Holies one day a year. That is the Day of Atonement. You guys are with me? But he entered twice. The first time he entered with the blood for his own sins. And then he goes back, get different blood, 
enter back in for the sins of the people. And that's how the high priest will atone for the sins of the people throughout the history of the children of Israel. You guys are with me? So starting from verse 24, now the author of Hebrews is moving on to um, draw a parallel, a comparison between what the Old Testament high priest will do versus what Jesus has done as our high priest. He said that unlike the, the Old Testament high priest who entered into earthly tabernacle made by hand, Jesus entered into heaven itself, into the very presence of God to atone for our sins. Amen? And unlike the Old Testament high priest who had to enter once a year because he offered imperfect sacrifices, that's why he has to repeat it every single year, Jesus entered once and for all, not with the blood of a different sacrifice, but with his own blood. And when he did that, he put away once and for all the sins of the whole world. You guys are with me? So that is the context pretty much of verse 18 to verse 26. Now... Let's try to focus a little bit on verse 23. It says this, Therefore, it was necessary that the copies of the things in the heaven. What is he talking about? What is the word copies of the things in the heaven? Is, is What's in the author of Hebrews' mind when he wrote that? Right. The tabernacle and its furniture, right? That's what he was telling us before. If you go back to uh, verse 19, when Moses has proclaimed every command of the law to all the people, he took the blood of cows together with water. And if you skip through verse, um, he sprinkled uh, verse 21. In the same way, he sprinkled the blood on both the tabernacle and everything used in its ceremony. That means Moses sprinkled the, the walls of the tabernacle, the arcs in the tabernacle, the, the brazen altar, the brazen laver, all the furniture of the tabernacle, Moses has sprinkled with the blood of the sacrifice, right? And that's how he inaugurated the old covenant. Now, the author of Hebrews calling these furniture, the pieces of the tabernacle in verse 23, as the copies of the things that are in heaven, right? But let's try to understand that even deeper. What does he mean that the veil, that the altar, and the lever are copies of the things that are in heaven? What I'm trying to say is that the author of Hebrews was thinking they are copies not because they are prototypes, but because they are symbols. You guys are with me? They're not prototypes. There are symbols. What does that mean? When the author of Hebrews talk about the veil in the Old Testament tabernacle as a copy of the things that are in heaven, he's not saying that heaven also has a veil, a literal veil made with cloth that just happened to be a whole lot larger dimension than the actual veil that is in the earthly tabernacle. You guys are with me? What he's saying is this, the veil is a symbol of something in heaven, how people cannot approach a holy and a righteous God. So the idea when he said that the furniture of the Old Testament tabernacle was copies of the things that are in heaven, is not saying that these are pro prototypes, that heaven also has furniture in it, just on a larger scale. He's saying that these furniture are just pure symbols to the realities of how sinners can approach God in heaven. You guys are with me? Or in the heavenly realm. That's pretty much what he's saying. The author of Hebrews over and over explained to us uh, some of these things in the Old Testament and what they represent. Remember earlier in chapter 9, verse 8, he told us that the first, 
the first room, the holy place, is a resemble what? What does it represent? It represents hindrance from entering into the presence of God. You guys are with me? Chapter 9, verse 8. The Holy Spirit was showing by that that the way into the most holy place has not yet been disclosed as long as the first tabernacle was still functioning, standing. So in the author of Hebrews' mindset, the first tabernacle, the holy place, is representing hindrance from entering into the presence of God. That is how it is a copy of the things that are in heaven. Not that heaven has two rooms in it. God is in the inner room, and there is a veil between the two rooms. You guys are with me? So these are uh, symbols of the realities of the heavenly realm. He also told us in chapter 6, verse 18 to 19, that we have our hope, which enters into the inner sanctuary, the Holy of Holies, behind the veil, behind the curtain, where our forerunners, Christ, has entered on our behalf. So for him, the Holy of Holies can represent the very presence of God. But also for him, he told us that the Holy of Holies can represent our time with God when you pray. That is for him also the Holy of Holies. He told us that in chapter 10, verse 19. We're going to see that. We have confidence to enter into the most holy place by the blood of Christ. What is that most holy place that we can enter by the blood of Christ? It's your prayer time. It's when you come here to the, to the church where God is present among us, right? This is the most holy place. How do we enter in that presence of God? By the blood of Christ. So the most holy place in the author of Hebrews mindset can either present the gathering of the saints or it can present the actual heaven. He told us also that the curtain, the veil, is, is a symbol of the body of Christ that was torn for us. And when the body was torn, now we can enter into the very holy of holies. You guys are with me? So over and over again, we see that the mindset of the author of Hebrews is that this furniture, the pieces of the Old Testament tabernacle, are symbols of the reality of the heavenly realm. How a sinner like you and me can approach a holy God. That the physical way of approaching the Holy of Holies in the Old Testament tabernacle is a representation of the spiritual facts and ways and rules by which sinners like you and me can approach a holy and a righteous God. You guys are with me? So um, that's why here, um, also notice this. After he said that the copies of, of, of the things that are in heaven was cleansed by the blood of the sacrifices, he said this afterward. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. Notice he didn't say, but heaven itself, right? He's not saying that heaven need to be cleansed. He's saying that the heavenly things need to be cleansed. So when he says the heavenly things, obviously he's not referring to physical furniture that is represented by the furniture of the Old Testament tabernacle, but it's most likely he's referring to the heavenly realities of how sinners like you and me can approach a holy and a righteous God. Amen? So the thought here is this. When the author of Hebrews is saying that the things that are in heaven need to be cleansed by the sacrifice of Christ, it's not talking about uh, actual physical pieces of furniture. It is where it is geographically located in heaven. He's talking more about um, uh, not physical or local geography, but he's talking about the spiritual atmosphere through which a sinner can approach God. When we meet God, you and me, when you, we and me come to the prayer time and pray and seek the face of God, we cannot have that 
relationship, that spiritual place of meeting God, not physical place, but the spiritual place of meeting God, uh, could have never even came to existence unless Jesus has died for us on the cross and provided that way for us that we can approach a holy and a righteous God. You guys are with me? So the thought here is this. He's talking about spiritual realities, spiritual location, not physical or geographical location. Right? There's a problem with that, though. If you try to link that verse that we have just read, verse 23, to the following verse, which is verse uh, 24 and 25. This is what he's saying. For Christ has not entered into the holy place made by hands, uh, which are copies of the true, similar to what he said, copies of the things that are in heaven, uh, but into heaven itself now to appear into the presence of God for our sake. So if you link verse 23 and 24 together, that's when this understanding might be problematic. Because the Old Testament high priest would enter into the holy place once a year, and by the blood of the sacrifice, which he sprinkled on the actual physical furniture of the Old Testament tabernacle, he would cleanse the tabernacle. Technically, that's what it says in Leviticus 16, that the tabernacle now is purified because of the sins of the children of Israel, right? So if you understand verse 23 in the light of verse 24, it seems like the author of Hebrews is drawing a parallel. He's saying just as the Old Testament high priest will enter into the Holy of Holies, and by the blood of a sacrifice, he can cleanse the tabernacle and its furniture, so Jesus, when he entered into heaven by his blood, he also cleansed heaven and its furniture with his own blood. You guys are with me? What I think is an easy answer to that is, by understanding verse 23 in light of what preceded it, not in light of what came after it, right? So I think it's best if we understand verse 23 in the light of the events of Exodus 24, not in the light of the events of, of Leviticus 16. And I would say that at verse 24, the author of Hebrews now is starting a brand new thought. That verse 23 is pretty much closing what he was arguing from verse 18 to 22, that when Moses inaugurated the covenant on Exodus 24, he used the blood of a sacrifice, and by that blood, um, that, that the actual furniture was cleansed in the same manner what was physical during that time, applied spiritually to our relationship with Christ. Amen? Now, at verse 24, he will start a brand new thought by going back to comparing what Jesus has done versus what the Old Testament high priest has done. This is just my way of understanding it. You might not agree with me, uh, but this is what I think is the best way we can understand verse 23. You guys are with me? Now, this is problem number one. We have another problem with that verse. <laughs> um, the, the second problem with that verse is what he said at the very tail end of that verse. He said, but the heavenly things themselves with a better, better what? Sacrifices or sacrifice? Sacrifices. Which is very odd, right? Because how many times did Jesus die? Jesus died once. And for him to say sacrifices, plural, that's just odd and it's rare. He never actually said that anywhere else in the whole book. Why is he using the plural to refer to the death of Christ? And here's my answer. I don't have an answer for this one. It's just a tough one. I don't, there are some uh, options out there. I'll read you the best one I found. But none of these is actually pretty uh, convincing to me. But we just need to know one thing for sure. When he used the plural sacrifices, he's definitely not implying to us that the sacrifice of Christ was not sufficient. That is the bottom line. How do we know that? Because right after that, in verse 20, um, 
25, he said this, not that he should offer himself often as the high priest enter the, the most holy place every year with the blood of another. If that's the case, he then would have, have had to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now, once, how many times? Once, at the end of the age, he appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. So he is pretty clear that he's not taking away that the sufficiency of the one sacrifice that Jesus has done for us on the cross, right? So what does exactly he mean? Uh, it's, it's, it's not clear to me, at least. It's not very clear. The idea here, the best understanding is that, G, that when the author of Hebrews used the word sacrifices with plural, um, let me read you word for word, um, what, what one of these commentators said. He said the plural is used to express the general preposition. Uh, those strictly referring to the one sacrifice of Christ once and for all. And then he said this, the author of Hebrews implies that his one sacrifice by his matchless excellency is equivalent to the Levitical many sacrifices. It, though but one, is manifold in the effects and applica applicability too many. This is the best way I could word it. I, did, I, I wanted to read it because I couldn't even word it that good. But it's, I, I don't know, it's, it's good, but I'm not sure if it's exactly why, explains the reason why he used the word sacrifices. So that's verse 23. Amen? But the rest will go far much easier. Now, let's move on. He says this in verse 24. Um, For Christ did not enter into the holy place made with hands, which are copies of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear um, in the presence of God for us. We've seen him talking about this before, right? Over and over, he mentioned to us how Jesus did not enter into an earthly sanctuary, but he entered into heaven itself to provide actual and true salvation for us. And then verse 25, not that he should offer himself often as the high priest enter the most holy place every year with the blood of another. We talked about that. He's drawing the parallel with Leviticus 16, how the high priest had to do it once a year to enter with the insufficient blood of insufficient animal, but Jesus is different because his blood is far more superior. Verse 26, he would have had to suffer often since what? The foundation of the world. When the author of Hebrews used the word, the foundation of the world, what is he implying to us? He's implying to us that Jesus literally is the only way for any person to get into heaven even since the foundation of the world, right? Because he's saying that the effect of the sacrifice of Christ actually does start at the foundation of the world. And if Jesus would have to cover for sin in the same manner like the Old Testament high priest, then he must have died over and over and over again because his sin atones, his death atones for every sin that has ever been committed since the foundation of the world. Amen? In other words, he's saying that there's no other way for any sin, even under the Old Testament covenant, that any sin could have ever been forgiven apart from Christ. Amen? And isn't that what we talked about last week? Verse 15, what did he say? And for this reason, he's a mediator of a better covenant, of a new covenant, by means of death for the redemption of the transgression under that First covenant. We talked about that last week. When Jesus died, he did not just redeem the sins that was committed from his time forward, but he redeemed the sins that was committed from his time backward. Amen? 
What is it in the Bible study uh, that we talked about the credit card versus the debit card? I can't remember. Not sure. Anyways, uh, we were in a setting and, and somebody was asking, how can Jesus, how can people in the Old Testament be saved if Jesus would have not died at this point and paid the price? And the analogy that we thought about is credit card versus debit card. What I'm trying to say is this. When you have a credit card, right, and the bank say, um, you have $7,000 to spend on that credit card. This money is not actually yours, right? But you can go out and use that credit card to spend money with the assumption that ultimately you're going to pay it back. You guys are with me? Mm -hmm. Now, a debit card is different. When you have $7,000 in that bank, that's your money. When you go out and spend that money, you're spending the money on the account that you already have this money. You guys are with me? Right? So that's how God forgave sins. Before Jesus, he forgave it on credit. Because Jesus is going to come and he's going to die, he's going to pay the price. And because Jesus will pay the price, now God is able to forgive sins committed under the Old Testament rules. You guys are with me? Because he knows that Jesus will ultimately pick up the bill. But now that Jesus has died, now the New Testament believer, we are forgiven on a debit card. The price has already been paid and we just draw from what Jesus has done for us on the cross. You guys are with me? So credit card before Jesus. Debit card after Jesus. Now, so the author of Hebrews is telling us this. Uh, since the foundation of the world, Jesus would have needed to die multiple times because there is no other way for sins to be forgiven, whether under the Old Testament or under the New Testament rules. But then he said this, but now at the end of the age, he has appeared how many times? Once and for all. Now, remember... Hebrews 1, 1, the very first thing that the author of Hebrews told us. God, who's in times past in many ways, has spoken to us by the prophet, has what? In these last days, spoken to us in his son, right? So he started the whole book by telling us about these last days. And that's what he's referring to here, that Jesus has come at the end of the age. And while this phrase is not repeated anywhere else in the book of Hebrews, it's repeated other places in the New Testament. Jesus spoke about the consummation of the age in Matthew 11:39. Paul spoke about the end of the ages, both in 1 Corinthians and in Galatians chapter 4. And Peter spoke about the end of times in 1 Peter 1:20. That is the time where Jesus appeared. Throughout the New Testament verses, it appears that this is the end of time. This is the time of fulfillment. You guys are with me? Now, I love how F.F. Bruce, one of the commentators, also worded this. I'm going to read it because it's so powerful. The last phrase, line and a half. It is not, think about this. It is not that Christ happened to come at the time of fulfillment, but that his coming made that time the time of fulfillment. You guys are with me? You have all the prophecies from the Old Testament coming about the coming Messiah who will save and deliver. And when Jesus came, that was the time of fulfillment because his coming made that time the time of the fulfillment of all the promises of God of salvation. You guys are with me, right? So it is not that God has the time and Jesus happened to appear in the time of fulfillment, but Jesus made that time the time of fulfillment. Now let's close, close with that thought says this in the very end of last, verse 26. He appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. The phrase put away sin. What is the author of Hebrews is talking about here? 
The word for, the Greek word for put away is um, uh, atathesis. It really comes from a Greek word called atatheo. It's two words together. A means negative, and then theo means um, uh, in place. So literally, the word means out of place. You guys are with me? We're, we talked about this before. Like the word atypical in English has the word, has the letter a, and then the word typical, and it means what? Not typical, right? That's the same principle here. The word is atheo means negative, and then place, so literally out of place. But the word usually has been used in, in legal terms. The idea behind the word is this, is to, to deprive the law of its force by opinions or acts contrary to it. What is the author of Hebrews is telling us here, what this word actually means is this. Let's say you go to court because you're a defendant and um, the jury goes in, they argue and they come out and they acquit you of your sin. They say you actually didn't do it and they acquitted you of the guilt and you go a free man. By the acquittal of the jury, the law has lost its force on you. You guys are with me? Let's say you're, uh, you're in the court. Let's say it's me, so nobody get offended because I, they accuse me of robbing a bank. The jury goes in, they debate, they come out and say, we acquit him, he's not the one. Now, when the jury acquitted me, the penalty, the force that the law has over me. If I would have been convicted, I would have to go to jail, right? But now that I'm acquitted, the power of the law over me has been loosened once and for all, has been deprived. The law has been deprived its authority over me. You guys are with me? So it's really more like a legal term than anything else. And that is what the author of Hebrews is telling us here that Jesus has done to sin. We talked about this before. What is sin? You guys remember? Sin is the breaking of the law. That's what John told us. If you're a sinner, you're a transgressor of the law. When it comes to God, it's all about law and the legal aspect of the law. God is a holy God. He's a just God. And his law says, if you break my commandment, if you break my law, then you must be punished. And we break the law of God. We sin, we lie, we steal, we manipulate, we do all sorts of things. And when we, when we sin, we break the law of God. And when we break the law of God, we're guilty before God. And thus, we have to be punished. We have to be punished because we have broken his law, right? And the law has that authority, has power over us. The punishment that is over us is not going anywhere. And there's nothing we can do to get out of it. We must pay the penalty of that law. Amen? But when Jesus came and he died on the cross by his own blood, by his own sacrifice, he took away the power of the law over us by paying himself through his blood the penalty that we deserve and we owe to the law. You guys are with me? So if, if I go to court and I ha they found me guilty, and I have to pay $10,000 fine and I don't have it, then Barb comes in and she pays the $10,000 on my behalf. Now that she paid on my behalf, the requirement of the law has been satisfied and I can go free. You guys are with me? And the power that the law has over me, that I have to go to jail because I cannot afford paying the requirement of the law, has been taken away once and for all and has been deprived. Isn't that good news? This is what Jesus has done for us. Amen? God is a holy and a just and a righteous God. And we have sinned against him and we are doomed 
in front of a holy and a righteous God because we must pay the penalty of breaking the law. And that penalty is to be separated from God for all eternity in hell. Amen? But Jesus came and as our substitute, he died on the cross, he shed his blood, and by the power of his blood, he put away the legal consequences of breaking the law of God once and for all. Amen? And now that the legal penalty has been waived, we can be forgiven and we can enter into an actual relationship with the holy and righteous God. Amen? Amen. I don't know about you, this is good news. That word, uh, put away, to annul, to, to disannul, to, to just take out, to, to make it void, the author of Hebrews used it one time before, and we'll close with that thought. He used it twice throughout the book. He used it in Hebrews 7.18, and he used it here in Hebrews 9.26. He says this, Hebrews 7, 18, for on one hand, there is a sitting aside. That's, that sitting aside is the exact same word. There is the annulment. There is the uh, voiding, the sitting aside of the former commandment, the former law, because of, of its weakness and the unusefulness. You guys are with me? Remember we talked about this? How the law of the Old Testament failed to bring anyone to God. And because it failed, God decided to do away with it and replace it with a new law, the grace of God, right? And that old law has been, this, has been voided, has been annulled, has been just put away, and now it is powerless and it is useless. And the exact same word the author of Hebrews talked here about the legal consequences of sinning and breaking the law of God. Jesus also has annulled, has voided, has made idle the penalty of breaking the law of sin because he paid it himself on the cross. Amen? Amen. The idea is that Jesus by his death voided the, the legal demands of the law of God by us sinning and breaking his law. Amen?